This is Our American Stories, and every once in a while, it's important to dig down deep and bring you the stories that affect your lives, the kind of stories that matter to you the most. In this groundbreaking journalistic endeavor you're about to hear, our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, will shake America to its foundation with his profound and timeless retrospection into the time and lives of the Internet of Things and the Internet favorite, Talking Cats. Test one, two. Testing one, two. Every once in a while, we like to treat ourselves to the nonsensical musings of the common domestic house cat. Like this little guy, for example. We think he has rabies. You probably don't want to touch or go near a cat that sounds like this. But kids love talking cats. Like this little guy. He sure doesn't like to be pet. Our cat's fun. What lovely house pets. Like this little psycho. He's screaming the word no because he doesn't want to take a bath. Pure nightmare fuel. And this is perhaps the world's most famous talking cat. He's known as the Olong Johnson cat. Let's listen to what he's saying. Oh, my dog. Oh, Long John. Oh, Long Johnson. Oh, Don Piano. Why I eyes you. All the live long day. And last but not least, there's this creepy little guy known as the ISIS terrorist cat from deep in the heart of Syria. And this has been Talking Cats on Our American Stories. And thank you for that report, Jesse. That's very good. Very serious. (laughs) By the way, we love shifting moods and themes, and from that serious report to an even more serious report, the man who's been delivering us inspiring fortunes that come from the inside of fortune cookies is nearly out of ideas. For 30 years, Donald Lau has served as chief fortune writer at Wonton Foods, which builds itself as the largest manufacturer of fortune cookies, noodles, and other Chinese staples in the world. Now, he's stepping down. Why? He's got writer's block. But not all hope is lost. When Donald Lau bought the Wonton Food Factory in the 1980s, he started writing fortunes to go inside the fortune cookies. And now, decades later... He's passing the baton to his son, James Wong. Here's Donald and his son, James, talking about this peaceful exchange of power. When we bought the factory uh, back in the mid-80s, we decided to update the fortunes. And since my English was uh, the best among the group, uh, I was given the job. I guess I got the job by default. Writing fortunes was never uh, part of my career projection. I'm Don Lau. I've been with uh, Wonton Food for oh, more than 30 years now. My dad was with the company. Uh, he's now retired. So I would come around to the factories when I was at a very young age. That's how I got to know the business, basically just spending time there. My name is James Wong. Um, 
uh, role I have many. I'm in charge of overseeing IT, purchasing, and of course, fortune writing. Well, in the old days, uh, all the fortunes were um, the horoscope type uh, fortunes. Uh, uh, you will do this and this, you will meet uh, that person, uh, you will find love, uh, things like that. But over time, we've introduced some Chinese philosophy and uh, humor into the uh, fortune cookies. This role is kind of coming more prominent for me because Donald is saying that he should hand it off. Well, I'm getting uh, a writer's block more often, so that's why James is, uh, will be helping out and uh, he'll be taking over the responsibility. Me and Donald always joke around with the fortunes that it, that's in his head that he's thinking about. Uh, eventually, I kind of fell into the role. Fortune writing is the, the, the most fun out of all the jobs that I can think of in the company. And usually, the inspiration would come from people around me. And also, there is definitely some type of philosophy that you need to keep in mind. Fortune cookies reaches everyone. A lot of times, I think about my daughter uh, and what kind of advice that I would give her. Failure is the mother to success. There are legal concerns whether we might risk a chance of getting sued. And it was apparently read by someone that is having trouble with the marriage. The husband is about to go off on a business trip. He was in a Chinese restaurant with his wife and got his fortune cookie. The message read, romance is in the air in your next trip. The wife got very upset and decided that it's our fault. There is a risk with anything that we write, but we still need to keep a positive attitude about it. There's a sense of seriousness in the office, and uh, fortune writing is definitely the outlet for our sense of humor. My daughter uh, became a doctor, and I asked her, uh, why do you want to be a doctor? And she said, I want to make people feel better. So I came up with a fortune that says, want to make people feel better? Forget med school, go into comedy instead. Your fortune, it's complicated. <laughs> I came up with one which will not be in the uh, fortune. Don't run for president. You're not a good liar. And another one, uh, you know that most fortune cookies are eaten in Chinese restaurants. You are what you eat, but you still don't look Chinese. <laughs> Come more often. <laughs> you will soon become such a VIP that the NSA will listen to your phone calls. We try to be humorous keep things a little lighthearted. And this is Lee Habib talking cats, fortune cookie writers. And by the way, Wanton Food makes a staggering 4.5 million cookies each day in their Queens, New York factory. Great job on this, Jesse, as always. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. I could escape this feeling It's my channel.
is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you great commencement speeches. And they don't just happen in the summers. They happen all year round. People graduate in the winter. They graduate in the fall. And this one comes to us via a man you probably all know, at least his title, but you may not know his name. But you're going to know how he thinks and feels about life after this remarkable commencement speech. And the man is Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts, who spoke to the graduating class at Cardigan Mountain School, a boarding school for boys grades 6 through 9. Wow, pretty heady speaker for a, for a middle school. And one of the kids in that graduating class was John Roberts' own son. The Chief Justice began his talk with these young men with something quite different than the usual platitudes that a commencement speaker delivers. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck again from time to time so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It is a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you will have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. My goodness, that should probably play at every graduation speech. That may be the best advice. We do a lot of commencement addresses here, by the way, on Our American Stories. That may be one of the best short passages. But John Roberts wasn't finished. Now, commencement speakers are also expected to give some advice. They give grand advice, and they give some useful tips. The most common grand advice they give is for you to be yourself. It is an odd piece of advice to give people dressed identically. <laughs> but you should, you should be yourself. But you should understand what that means. Unless you are perfect, it does not mean don't make any changes. In a certain sense, you should not be yourself. You should try to become something better. People say be yourself because they want you to resist the impulse to conform to what others want you to be. But you can't be yourself if you don't learn who you are. And you can't learn who you are unless you think about it. The Greek philosopher Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And while just do it may be a good model for some things, it's not a good model when it's trying to figure out how to live your life that is before you. And one important clue to living a good life is to not to try to live the good life. The best way to lose the values that are central to who you are is frankly not to think about them at all. And well said. Chief Justice Roberts then went on to give these young men, these boys, some tips. 
Over the last couple of years, I've gotten to know many of you young men pretty well, and I know you are good guys. But you are also privileged young men. And if you weren't privileged when you came here, you're privileged now because you have been here. My advice is don't act like it. When you get to your new school, walk up and introduce yourself to the person who is raking the leaves, shoveling the snow, or emptying the trash. Learn their name and call them by their name during your time at the school. Another piece of advice, when you pass by people you don't recognize on the walks, smile, look them in the eye, and say hello. The worst thing that will happen is that you will become known as the young man who smiles and says hello. <laughs> and that is not a bad thing to start with. You've been in a school with just boys. Most of you will be going to a school with girls. I have no advice for you. <laughs> the, the last bit of advice I'll give you is very simple, but I think it could make a big difference in your life. Once a week, you should write a note to someone. Not an email, a note on a piece of paper. It will take you exactly 10 minutes. Talk to an adult, let them tell you what a stamp is. <laughs> you can put the stamp on the envelope. Again, 10 minutes once a week. I will help you right now. I will dictate to you the first note you should write. It will say, dear, fill in the name of a teacher at Cardigan Mountain School. Say, I have started at this new school. We are reading blank in English. Football or soccer practice is hard, but I'm enjoying it. Thank you for teaching me. Put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and send it. It will mean a great deal to people who, for reasons most of us cannot contemplate, have dedicated themselves to teaching middle school boys. <laughs> As I said, that will take you exactly 10 minutes a week. By the end of the school year, you will have sent notes to 40 people. 40 people will feel a little more special because you did. And they will think you are very special because of what you did. Now, what else is going to carry that dividend during your time at school? Chief Justice ended his speech with some song lyrics. I cited the uh, Greek philosopher Socrates earlier. These lyrics are from the great American philosopher Bob Dylan. They're almost 50 years old. He wrote them for his son, Jesse, who he was missing while he was on tour. They list the hopes that a parent might have for a son and for a daughter. They're also good goals for a son and a daughter. The wishes are beautiful. They're timeless. They're universal. They're good and true, except for one. It is the wish that gives the song its title, and its refrain. That wish is a parent's lament. It's not a good wish. So these are the lyrics from Forever Young by Bob Dylan. May God bless you and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every rung and may you stay forever young. May you grow up to be righteous, 
May you grow up to be true. May you always know the truth and see the light surrounding you. May you always be courageous, stand upright and be strong, and may you stay forever young. May your hands always be busy. May your feet always be swift. May you have a strong foundation when the winds of changes shift. May your heart always be joyful. May your song always be sung. And may you stay forever young. Thank you. And there you have it, Chief Justice John Roberts, his commencement speech at the Cardigan Mountain School in New Hampshire. What a treat for those young men. John Roberts' story, because my goodness, he bore more of himself in this than any Supreme Court opinion. John Roberts' story, his son's story, Cardigan Mountain School's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we love to tell you stories about the things that matter in your life. From sports to the arts, and that's music and movies, straight through to history and to the personal. And by the way, from the personal we mean, well, love and death and marriage. Stories that make you think or laugh or cry. That's what we do here. No screaming, no yelling. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. This next story is so bizarre that most people think it's an urban legend even though it's very much a true story. This is the tale of Lawn Chair Larry. Here's Jesse. Larry Walters had always dreamed of flying. By the age of 13, on a visit to an Army-Navy surplus store, 
He saw several empty weather balloons hanging from the store's ceiling and thought that it would be an interesting way to attain flight. When he came of age, he enlisted in the United States Air Force with the hope of finally learning to fly. However, it was discovered that he had poor eyesight, thus killing his flight career before it could even begin. After leaving the Air Force, Walters began to hatch his plan. His idea was to attach a couple of helium-filled weather balloons to a lawn chair, then cut away an anchor and float above his own backyard at a height of about 30 feet for just a couple of hours. 33-year-old Larry Walters was now living in North Hollywood and working as a truck delivery man for a film production company when he invested $4,000 in his project, purchasing nearly four dozen surplus weather balloons. Under the guise of being for use in filming a television commercial, he also purchased compressed helium cylinders, a sturdy aluminum lawn chair from Sears, and various other bits of equipment for the flight. Walters even learned how to skydive and planned on wearing a parachute for the flight, just in case. The night before the launch of a short test flight of the contraption, Walters and several friends met up at the San Pedro home of Carol Van Dusen, Larry's then-girlfriend. The crew inflated balloons throughout the night and rigged together the chair and assorted equipment. At 11 o'clock in the morning of July 2nd, 1982, Walters sat atop his lawn chair under his towering apparatus, christened Inspiration One. Four tiers of helium balloons, over 40 in total, rose tall above him. The flight plan called for Walters and his balloons to fly out over Long Beach and 300 miles east towards the Mojave Desert. He was equipped with an altimeter, a parachute, a life jacket in case of a water landing, a two-liter bottle of Coca-Cola, a sandwich, and a Citizens Band CB walkie-talkie radio. He also carried a BB gun pistol. His idea was to shoot the balloons one by one to gently lower his altitude when it was time to come down. Now tethered to the ground by three lines tied up to the bumper of a jeep, Walters waited with anticipation as the ropes were to be cut. But after his girlfriend cut one of the tethers holding the craft to the ground, the other two ropes snapped suddenly. The balloons and Walters and his lawn chair were rocketed skyward. His eyeglasses ripped from his face and he was soaring upwards at an alarming rate. He had only expected to attain a flight level of 100 feet off the ground. Using the CB radio that he had brought along for the ride, he radioed his girlfriend on the ground. Here's the actual audio from that fateful flight. that he might unbalance the load, he didn't dare shoot any of the balloons with his BB gun. Instead, he spent about two hours up in the sky at 16,000 feet, over three miles high. From San Pedro, Walters and his balloons began to drift over Long Beach and cross the primary approach path of Long Beach Airport. Yeah, I wish I was a bird. 
Airline pilots from both TWA and Delta reported seeing him to the control tower. Walters grabbed his CB radio again, this time using Channel 9, the designated emergency channel, and attempted to notify the tower. They were in disbelief of what they were hearing. Now shivering in the thin, high-altitude air, Walters finally used his BB gun to start popping balloons in order to lower his altitude. Now descending, he aimed as best he could to land at the Virginia City Country Club in Long Beach. But he came down just short of the golf course and headed into a residential neighborhood. He dumped out the gallon jugs of water tied to the lawn chair to slow his landing. But on the way down, his balloons draped over a set of power lines. Left dangling five feet off the ground, the police had to shut down electricity in Long Beach for 20 minutes in order for Walters to safely climb out of his contraption down and into the backyard of a house in Long Beach. He was immediately arrested by waiting members of the Los Angeles Police Department. When asked by a reporter why he had done it, Walters replied, quote, A man can't just sit around. The Federal Aviation Administration was initially baffled by the incident, and Walters had been catapulted unexpectedly and unprepared from obscurity to national fame. In December of 1982, Walters was accused by the FAA of committing several violations of the Federal Aviation Act. The resulting fines totaled $4,000. Walters went on to tour as a motivational speaker after his flight. He quit his job as a truck driver, but was never able to make much money from his fame. Walters even accepted invitations to appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and Late Night with David Letterman. We're delighted to have this gentleman with us tonight. Please welcome Larry Walters. This is a phenomenal thing. Where did you get the idea to do this? Uh, when did it hit you? You said it was a 20-year dream? Yes, sir. Uh, it hit me when I was a young boy, about 13 years old. I was in an Army Navy surplus store. Saw a weather balloon dangling from the ceiling. And I just got the idea uh, to put uh, to inflate these balloons, and I figured if I had enough of them, it'd lift me. Uh -huh. The idea was just, you know, the float. Yeah. And I was fascinated by it, and I fulfilled the 20-year dream. But Larry Walters never found happiness. Later on in his life, Walters hiked into the San Gabriel Mountains and shot himself in the heart. He left no suicide note. And that's the story of Lawn Chair Larry. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. When he was a young man, he dreamed of flying high. He dreamed of flying far above his home and through the clear blue sky. And just a great job, Jesse. And you know, the thing about Americans is we're always trying to test boundaries. And we love aviation stories here on Our American Stories. And you want to hear a stem winder about a couple of crazy guys who tested some boundaries? Listen to David McCullough on our show and his book, The Wright Brothers. These were two crazy guys 
tinkering with air travel long before anyone else could get up in the air. These two bicycle mechanics were doing it in the fields of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. They were crazy, they were wild, they were unqualified, and they did it. And that's what Americans do. They do crazy things in their spare time. We cover those stories. The famous ones like the Wright Brothers and the sort of kind of famous ones like Lawn Chair Larry. Lawn Chair Larry's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story comes from David McGee, and he's a publisher of the Oxford Eagle here in Oxford, Mississippi, where we do this show. It's just about an hour south of Memphis, and it's a college town. It's the home of Ole Miss. David is the author of a dozen books, including How Toyota Became Number One and The John Deere Way. He's been a regular guest on CNBC and Fox Business and writes an award-winning newspaper column. He grew up in the college town, the son of a professor, an academic dean, and his son was a star in college who tragically died after graduation a few years ago from an accidental drug overdose. He wrote a column that was heartbreaking and moving, and it was called Four Ole Miss Freshmen, My Son William's Story, and we asked him to read it for us. The new freshman class started at Ole Miss this week, and I wish I could tell them all this story. It's about my oldest son, William, who was a freshman in 2008. He would gladly tell them himself, if only he were alive. With a quick wit and a big, friendly smile, William was an A student in the Honors College in Croft Institute at Ole Miss. He was fluent in Spanish, member of a fraternity, and he ran track for the Rebels his freshman and sophomore years. The 400 hurdles is considered by many one of the most difficult in sports, and William had the courage to walk on and do it in the Southeastern Conference. He led it at Ole Miss his sophomore year and was rewarded by participation in the SEC Outdoor Track and Field Championships in 2010. His Ole Miss letterman's jacket, that he earned is one of our family's most prized possessions. That and the plaque he received for making the SEC's all-academic team in 2010. It was quite an achievement, considering he managed the Honors College, Croft Institute, a fraternity, and track at the same time, and came out on top. Making any kind of all-SEC team is a big deal, I told him. The year he worked so hard to excel in track and academics for the Rebels. It'll be an achievement that will always mark who you are and what you can do. I still remember the pride in his voice the night he called me after receiving the plaque for the SEC academic honor on the floor of the Ole Miss Tad Smith Coliseum during halftime of a Rebel basketball game. I was out there with the football players, he said. It was so cool. 
William met a beautiful, smart girl at Ole Miss who became his girlfriend for four years in college. We loved her. We hoped they'd one day marry. He had friends who shared his joy of music and laughter and traveling the world. He was the same sweet, smart, competitive young man who sang in the church choir and camped at Alpine in summers during his youth. In college those first two years, he appeared to be all everything. And track practice kept him in check most weekdays his freshman and sophomore years. The season ran both fall and spring semester with early morning weightlifting and afternoon workouts, enough to keep anybody straight. On the weekends when the music cranked up and the lights turned low, he partied with so many other students. It was all contextualized into a good collegiate reason as opposed to abuse or a problem. It's the fraternity Christmas party. It's double-decker weekend. It's the night before the Alabama game. It's the Grove. It's a music festival. It was alcohol. It was ecstasy, marijuana, and Xanax. Lots of Xanax. We had talked before his freshman year at Ole Miss about the perils of viewing alcohol abuse and recreational drug use as something as a rite of passage in college. Some people get in so deep in college they can never get out of it, I told him. I've seen it happen too many times. Be careful. William suffered from anxiety and low self-esteem. He tried to medicate with alcohol and drugs, like so many others. He was comforted that substances like alcohol brought him closer to the conversation in social situations. He was considered a square more than a partier. And William hid his habit from many friends, but privately, drawing the line was hard. And one drug led to another over time, as so often happens, sometimes by accident. I'd warned him that drug dealers can't be trusted. The drug dealers know the tricks, like mixing heroin with cocaine to make it doubly addictive before a user even knows what hit them. And it's easier to succumb when the dealer is a fraternity brother or the guy down the hall at the dorm who looks a lot like you. I know, he said, brushing off my warning. Everybody knows that. William was a senior at Ole Miss by the time we recognized the depths of his troubles. He graduated, another proud moment, but he was frail. He'd wanted to go to law school, but instead checked into rehabilitation. Once he realized the addiction, it advanced to the point that he was no longer the person he once was. William was scared. The drugs had taken over. Dropping our firstborn off at a rehabilitation facility that cool fall day wasn't easy. We'd hoped the 30-day stay in an inpatient treatment center would get this problem under control and his life back on track and everything gets back to normal. We were naive, maybe just hopeful, as parents tend to be. William bounced between several rehabilitation facilities around the country the next year. He was kicked out of one in Colorado because he purchased a bottle of cough syrup from a drugstore and drank it to get high. He was kicked out of another because he and a friend found a way to purchase one painkiller pill each from the outside world. They took it for old times' sake, 
and William confessed the misdeed to the counselor, asking for another chance, thinking his admission might make a difference. You were right, William told me. My plan was to graduate from college and quit. But quitting's harder than I thought. I'm not sure how to get out of this. We got William back into a rehab facility in Nashville, and finally, progress. He graduated to a halfway house. With a college degree, he got a job at a Mac computer store. They put him in charge of training. His co-workers bragged about his sales skills and said he was a joy to work with. Sweetest young man, they said. Oh yes, and so very smart. I quit my job and took another to be closer to him, visiting weekly and having daily phone conversations. Anything to try and help. So I was alarmed one Friday night when he called and he did not answer. By the next morning, when he still did not answer, I knew. The drive to Nashville took two hours, but it felt like 22. I could not feel my hands on the wheel and my stomach churned. Once there, I found William dead from an accidental drug overdose. Our son had gotten off work that Friday and gone to a widespread panic concert where he ingested alcohol and most every drug imaginable for hours. When he got home from the concert, he texted a drug dealer and bought more drugs. That cocaine ingested just before midnight, combined with the other drugs in his system and took his life. The body can only take so much after all. Eventually, it shuts down. Three years plus a few months later, we've made a peace with William's addiction and tragic death as much as parents can. We were blessed beyond measure to have been given the son in our lives for 23 years. Blessed beyond measure. And that is enough. We have memories of laughter and warm hugs, plus that hard-earned letter jacket from Ole Miss and so much more to cling to. But we don't want other students to suffer like he did or other families to suffer like we have. That's why I wish I could reach out and touch every freshman to tell them William's story, to tell them that alcohol and drug binging and abuse isn't a collegiate rite of passage or a contextual excuse. It can be a dangerous, if not deadly, path that is so hard to escape. And thank you, David, for sharing that with us. And That one part just unimaginable to me, that unanswered call where you said you knew. And I think every parent dreads that call or that unanswered call. And the son saying to you, I'm not sure how to get out of this. That's just got to be heartbreaking. And David and his family have taken this grief and turned it into something positive. The William McGee Center for Wellness Education at Ole Miss, and they are to provide support and advocacy and awareness for alcohol and drug-related issues on the campus. And he had hoped that freshmen at Ole Miss would hear this story, and we're hoping freshmen everywhere hear this story. William McGee's story, David McGee and his family's story, here on Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories, and our team is in love with another team called NIFTY, which stands for the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. These guys bring entrepreneurship classes and summer boot camps to economically disadvantaged areas where kids may have never thought about entrepreneurship before as an avenue for their future. And they've reached over 500,000 students thus far. Our own Alex Cortez traveled to St. Louis to meet with one of the teachers who teaches this entrepreneurship class, Obino Coley. Let's take a listen to his report. Where'd you grow up? I was born in Jamaica. Jamaica? Yeah, I was born in Jamaica, yep. Born in Jamaica. I came here when I was like four. Why did your parents move here? Always opportunities, man. This is the, the best country, the greatest country in the world, man. They what was their, What was life like for them in Jamaica first? Uh, farming. We, we stayed like, you know, Jamaica. A lot, when you say Jamaica, a lot of people think about like the, like the, the tourism parts of it. But there's like the actual, the city part and the country part of it. So we're actually from the country. Okay, like in high in the mountains part of Jamaica. So it's like farming and stuff like that. Was your dad struggling or was it just a tough life? Um, kind of, yeah, this is actually, a really grinding life and I, I think there might be more actually, in America. Or actually, my dad, like I, I remember my dad, he when I was in high school, he was learning to read. Like He didn't go to school. Like It was like one of those situations where you just stayed around the farm and worked. You know, you didn't really go to school, so he didn't. He didn't know how to read until you know I was in high school, and I just remember that. Why did he learn how to read? Why he learned? I guess is I guess something he just wanted to do against pers- personal goals. He never said it was. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's. You know, my kids are learning this now. I want to um, almost say you guys inspired him to do it. Nah, he wasn't one of those type of fathers, man. <laughs> nah, he didn't really express his feelings or anything like that. I just knew, like I I remember him. He used to work. Uh, he used to work at the hospital, third shift. He used to like do custodial work at the hospital, and I re- I just remember growing up we had to me and my little brother had to wake him up to like go from go to work, and he'd be so upset, so mad that he had to go do this job every night, and he used to get mad at the first person he sees. So we used to like throw pillows at him and stuff like that. So when he woke up, he wouldn't see nobody. You know, he just so I just remember like I didn't I just knew I didn't want you know that type of life, and he always said education was important. Obino would get that education. But he also got something else that he didn't expect. So I graduated in 2002 from college with a bachelor's in business management in May. So I had my first baby that April. Then I had my second kid um, that December. So I had like so I like like one one so of for the, with different women. Well, two different with yeah. different women. And and the cool thing about me is like the second day of school, I, I do a two day program. Uh, like uh, I tell kids everything how I got from from the start to finish. Wow! And a lot of kids they look at me and they don't know that you know I, I had two baby mamas. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's the term they like to use. But I also show them how I turned my life around from that. How I use that to motivate me that I didn't have three baby mamas. You know, yeah. sometimes we, we 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 messed up and we keep messing up. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with making a mistake. But are you gonna keep on making the same mistake over yeah. and over again? Sex is something that's kind of normalized now. But I just try to tell them like the, the the latter part of the story to it, and and the good thing is I understand how they feel because yeah. because you know it's not like I read in the book because I was in the <laughs> same place in the same you know so I think that's one of the reasons I have a good relationship with kids because I'm not a because I'm I'm not a stranger to them you know they know my story so it makes teaching a lot easier when you're not just a title to them you know you know you're like a person and now I can I can get in their face I could. 
I could be gruff with them, you know, because I have that relationship now yeah. with them. Don't, and most teachers, you cannot, you can't teach off a title. You have to teach off a relationship. At the end of the day, you mentioned, um, you know, learning from that after having two and, and not having become three. What did you learn, or what did you change in your life? Kind of just bring me to that that moment, if there was a single moment, or you oh, know, that changed things around. Definitely, or? I remember it was two thousand five. Was Christmas. It was Christmas having these two kids, and you can't, you don't, you know, you don't have a job, you don't have, you don't have no money to get no Christmas gift, and you know, Christmas is not about stuff like that, you know. But at the same time, you know, as a man, not being able to, you know, support my kids and all that stuff, and and at that time, I was I was in Chicago living with my mother, being back twenty five years old in in your house with your mother, you got a you got a uh, a bachelor's degree, but you know. It was still hard. It was, it was still hard trying to find work at that time, and I just remember spiritually, like I knew what the problem was because my heart was in the wrong place. Cause you know I grew up in a church, but then ever since I graduated high school, I like my life went in a total different direction, and I just knew what it was, man. And I was like, okay, and then, you know you have one of those moments. You get on your knees, you tell God, you bring me out of this. I, I turn my life around. Uh, but this time, I actually I actually kept my promise, man. I actually kept my promise. And I remember I got baptized at New Year's Eve. I've never been baptized or nothing like that. Wow. Actually, I got baptized at midnight. So I wanted to set up where I went down in 2005, and I came up in 2006. <laughs> and, that's how, and that's how I got baptized. Is that a common thing, or did you have nah, that specially that's, set up? I just had something I just wanted to do. That's why it just came to me. The pastor agreed? Yeah. <laughs> so I got baptized, uh, went down in 2005. <laughs> Came up in 2006, man. Yep, that was that's that's how I went. And when that happened, you know, I was still kind of lost. And if I if I'd never heard the word of God before in my life, he told me to do two things. He was like, because I, I stopped going to church. He was like, start going to church and start paying your tithes. And those are two things I heard him say. And I knew it was him because one, I tell kids it's like it, it never when it, when it came from me because I didn't I had no intentions on going to church. Sundays was my day to watch football all day long, and I've never paid my tithes. And another thing I tell kids is that, like, when I didn't do it, I felt funny inside. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I felt that conviction inside, so I knew it was God, and uh, that's how I got into teaching. So one day my pastor asked me to teach Sunday school. And at that age, I've never taught before in my life. I had no desire. My wife was a teacher. And, you know, and I was working. I was more like working like sales jobs, you know, random collections, sales that was my background. And uh, I started teaching Sunday school. And I remember the change in the dynamics of our relationship when I became a teacher in Sunday school. You know, our, uh, our little high and by, you know, conversations went to deeper conversations when I became a teacher. And you're I saying just, you appreciated your wife's work more? Is that what you're saying? Say it again? Are you saying that you appreciate oh, your wife's man. work more? Oh, man. Yes. I yeah. remember one time, I, I remember my first day teaching. And I came home and I just felt, I fell out. I was so exhausted from teaching all day, talking all day. I had to get used to it. And I used to tell my wife, you don't do nothing but stand up there and yell at kids. That's all you do. But man. And when we come back, more Robino Coley's story. A teacher at Normandy High School in St. Louis, Missouri, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Alex's conversation with Obino Coley, who teaches a high school entrepreneurship class with a curriculum that's provided by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Let's return to Obino and Alex's talk. At this point, Obino's just getting into teaching, and he has no idea what subject he wants to teach. It's his first day student teaching at McClure North High School in the St. Louis area, and a teacher there named Jake Lipinski was teaching this entrepreneurship class, and it also happened to be the very day he was having his first baby. And Jake decided to hand Obino a book that just said entrepreneurship on it and said, here you go, teach this class. And he left for the hospital without any more guidance, and Obino ate it up. Like, man, my first job I'm getting, I'm bringing this with me. So when I got hired on here three years ago, uh, the first year, uh, so this is Normandy. So this is Normandy. This is Normandy Schools Collaborative. Normandy right now is the only unaccredited high school in the state of Missouri. The only. The only high school that's unaccredited. They're unaccredited because their student achievement was so abysmal. It was frequent for teachers not to show up to class and without consequence. So the state took over the school that was also labeled the most dangerous school in St. Louis. And that had consequences. Uh, so basically what that means is kids that could basically, you know, you, you go to the school that you live around. Whatever school district you fall in is where you go to. But us being unaccredited, meaning kids has a, since the school district is unaccredited, kids has a right to, to go to different schools. Mm-hmm. And we have to pay for them. Yep. Transportation. Yep. So my first year here, I think on the state of Missouri, it's like a scale, like a, it's like a hundred and 40 points on that scale, and we had 12 points out of 140. Last year, I think we had like 80 points. So between those three years, this is just as, and, and what they did was, so they went from Normandy, Normandy School District to Normandy Schools Collaborative. So they changed, they fired, because once you change the school district, because the problem in education is like tenureship. It's hard to get rid of those, te- those, those teachers that's been there, you know, 20 years, because it's hard to get them, you know, you got the union and all that. So when they changed the, I don't know if it's a smart thing they did. So when they changed the school district, everybody had to reapply for their job. So this is like a whole brand new school district. So everybody lasts tenureship, the tenureship. So they fired a bunch of people. And I was, I was one of the ones they kind of hired, like the kind of fresh blood to bring in the school district. Because when the state took over three years ago, that's what, that's what their game plan, get rid of. Because they, they did their homework and figured, why is the school failing? So they figured that out. They scrapped the whole curriculum. It was just, it was just bare, bare necessities. Uh, English, math, reading, no honors courses, no AP courses, nothing. I think my first year we just taught personal finance and computer apps, and that was it. Um, my second year we kind of brought back some of the courses, and I, and I was like, well, I want to I introduce this entrepreneurship piece. And, you know, the cool thing about our administration is there are totally four kids, you know. I didn't have to turn no long plan or anything like that. He loved it, and, and so this is the second year having his entrepreneurship course here. Why does he love it? Because um, entrepreneurship, to be an entrepreneur, world of business, it encompasses so many other things you need to have. The math skills, the reading skills, the speaking skills, the thinking skills, the critical thinking. So... The whole curriculum encompasses everything. Obino was still a relatively new teacher, and I was curious how he dealt with something that can affect 
every type of class. Some teachers I've heard say, like, you either gain your students or you lose your students on your first day. Just how your, your students walk into your classroom, <clears throat> they see you and they're able to say, I'm going to take this teacher seriously or not. I think, I think, uh, I think as far as the, the behavior management is definitely set the first couple of days. Uh, as far as who's going to be in charge of that classroom. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's definitely set. I think sometimes, as uh, far as, like, getting involved in the content, it might, t- some people catch it early, some people catch it late, mm-hmm. but you can always get the involvement of coming. But once you lose your classroom, uh, once you haven't set those expectations, whether it's cool to walk in with, a, with, with your cell phone on, or it's cool to talk while I'm talking, if you let those behavior go, it's hard for you to, to reset it. And I learned that my my first year here. And even like even now, what I was just. What mistakes did you make your first year? Um, I I would say being too nice. I I I would say not being as firm as I need mm-hmm. to be the first couple of days, just so you could just save yourself time and energy on the back end. Because a lot of behaviors, you could save yourself. You know what I'm saying? As far as but there's two things I've learned as a teacher that you control 100%. There's two things. You know those two things? Though? What no. do you think? Take it, what do you think the two things you are? As a teacher, there's two things you control with uttermost power and ruthlessness and totalitarian authority. I don't know. Your you preparation know? and your attitude? Nah, nah, all right. <laughs> Who walks in your classroom okay. and where they sit? And that's it. That's it. That's the only two things you control. Who walks in your classroom and where they sit in your classroom. And you have to control those two things. Because a kid might come in my classroom jumping and playing. I tell him to leave. And what I'm doing, I'm setting the tone as he's walking in my classroom. And, it, and each classroom is different. You know what I'm saying? And the teachers that I, that I hear about cell phones, I also complain about cell phones, is do you let them walk in the classroom with a cell phone? Oh, yeah. Well, that's the problem. Because now... Now you got to deal with that cell phone problem five minutes into class. Yeah. But if you stop it at the door, you don't have to worry about it. You know what I'm saying? You're saying who comes in your class? Like, do you kick them out of the class? Ooh, You're going to say, like, You're no. Not be a I give No, I, I give them a choice. Okay. Either you can put your cell phone away or you can keep it out. But if you put it away, you're more than welcome to come in. If you keep it out, you got to stay in the hallway. But you can always come in when you're ready to pull it out. So you don't, it, it, you don't really have to kick kids out. You just give them a choice. Yeah. Okay. You know, and, and that's what it is. And most kids, most kids will make the right choice. Inside almost all of us, even these, the most challenging students, we want to be successful. As the owner of Johnsonville Sausage once told me, no one wakes up in the morning wanting to fail, except for a few cuckoo birds. On to Mr. Coley's entrepreneurship class. How does he make it come to life? The key thing is being a teacher, you have to link it to their, to their understanding. So I might talk about Jay Z, mm-hmm. Birdman, and I'm not gonna talk about Martha Stewart. You know, they might, you know, and then I, I might talk about starting a record label or start, you know, you know, whatever it may be, you know, businesses. Even like even even with the illegal drug trade, that's still a business. Oh yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's still the same concepts of a business. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? When we're talking about you know market shares, you know, we use Apple and Android a lot. You know what I'm saying? And we talk about market shares and products. That's the same concept when it comes to drug dealers and all that and all that and all those type of things. Because instead of market share, you're talking about city blocks. 
You know what I'm saying? When, yeah. when we see people killing other city blocks, they're trying to, they trying to capture that block to increase their market mm-hmm. share so they can sell their product. So it's all the same concept. See, my goal is to, is to take a kid that has the same, that has the, 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 who dare to have the, the audacity to, to, to go into a business where you could get killed, spend the rest of your life in jail, and still be brave enough to do it, to take that same kid and take that same energy, but using it in a positive way. You know, you could, you could create a business, you, you could, because there's, there's, there's a lot of intangible things that, you know, a grown up in an environment like this gives you that you don't get growing up in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a certain grit and rigor you develop in streetwise and, and not taking no for an answer that these kids have that these other kids don't have. Yeah. You know? I like my kids are soft. Like my kids <laughs> they grow up man like my kids are you know, they couldn't survive in the environment because you know, it's like Skokie to them, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, they, they wouldn't make it in in the, in the urban district, you yeah. know. But these kids, they have, they have something like, you know, I like Jay-Z said, I got my MBA from Marcy Projects. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And that's the type of grit that they have that just don't have the opportunity to use it in a positive way. And this class gives them that opportunity. Gives them the opportunity to start their very own business. Each student has to come up with their own business idea. And the final exam is their full written-up business plan, detailed with all the concepts they learned about in class. And if they're serious about their business, Mr. Coley will take it to another level with them, leveraging his connections and Nifty's connections to help them with it. Connections that can be virtually non-existent in an inner city where the greatest connection is the drug dealer. I tell them, I am not wasting adults' time. You know, you have to be serious. If you're going to take this course, and you, if you just want to take it to a grade, like I, I have a like an a Excel document, and it's two columns. Bring it to life, taking it for a grade. And I ask you, do you want to bring this to life, or you just want to take it for a grade? And they tell me, I just want to take it for a grade, and I check that box. And some people say, I want, I want to bring it to life, and I check that box. Bring it to life or take the grade. What a great way to put things. We just love this guy, Obino Coley. More on his story here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Alex's conversation with Obino Coley, St. Louis teacher who teaches a high school entrepreneurship class with a curriculum that's provided by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. And if you recall, he's the teacher of those two young boys who were going to New York City because they did so well under Obino's instruction, and that was Raheen and Damon. Let's take a listen. The business idea of Mr. Coley's two most serious students, Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney, who he calls by their last names, is what they've named the double backer packer. One backpack that's on your back and another that's on your chest, both connected by a shoulder strap and designed to more evenly distribute a bag's weight on your body, especially if you can't fit all of your stuff into one bag. 
Uh, how did they come up with the name? Do you remember the process of? Did man, they have other names? Man, he. I, I remember the day he came and said the double backer packer. Man, I said, man, I wanted to kick him out, man, because it was <laughs> it was a it was a ridiculous idea I ever heard, man. But then I thought about the snuggie, man. I said, oh man, the snuggie. You know what the snuggie is, yeah, right? Yeah. The snuggie has grossed over two hundred million dollars, man. Believe it or not, man. And knowing that, I was like, no, I, I didn't, I didn't see it, like how I see it now when he first said it. I'm like, man, that make no sense, man. Okay, but that's the beautiful thing about it. he believed in it. And that's all it takes. They've made it all the way to the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's national pitch competition in New York City. And that has a grand prize of $25,000 for high school students. What's been most rewarding for you in this job? These kids right here, man. Those kids. Because those kids probably are not entrepreneurs. You know, never really probably, you know, sat down and started thinking about ideas. Larry's kind of the brains behind the operation. And, like, that wasn't his first idea. He, he had, like, a different idea. He was, like, waterproof earbuds or whatever, something like that. And one day he came to me like, oh, I got an idea. The double backer packer. You know what I'm saying? Like, how you come up with it. And, it's, and it's, it's really the mindset of trying to change, especially our demographics. Quit being consumers all the time and be creators. All these apps that you're playing with, somebody created that and made millions of dollars. And they take those millions of dollars and they give back to their community. They give back to their university. You know, they give back to whatever they want to. So as African Americans, we need more entrepreneurs. We need more millionaires. So at the end of the day, we don't have to rely on the federal government. We can support our own selves. Obino's immigrant parents taught him how to take care of himself as they took care of themselves. I don't know if you've said thank you to your parents for all they've done for you and oh, definitely. this country, but you know, if your dad was, your, your mom was sitting here with us right now, what would you say to them? Uh, I would, my dad, always, I, actually I talk to him all the time, man. You know, dad, I would say thank you for having such a sucky job and motivate me to, to get an education because that, that was one of the things I always said to myself. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, have a job like he had. I want to have a job that I enjoy coming yeah. to. Okay? He didn't have a job coming to, man, so I, I appreciate that. Uh, mom, my mom's a little bit different, man. I, 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 let, me tell, let me tell you a funny story about my mom. I remember one day, I had to be in middle school. I had to be in middle school. And I it was a Sunday because I had a Sunday. I have, remember having my Sunday clothes on. We went to a Target, and I had a clipper set at home, but I didn't have any guards that you put on the clippers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I remember I had a, like this back in the days we had we had pullovers. Pullovers were like the big old things. And I had so I had a Cleveland Browns pullover, and I remember was at, at Target, and I opened up the uh, the package, and I put the clipper guards in my pullover. And we walked out the store, and security arrested me for stealing. And I, I, my mom, my mom was so mad at me for stealing. And I was surprised, and I thought she was gonna whoop me. And she didn't whoop me, man. You know what she did? She sent you to prison. No, she didn't send me to prison, man. <laughs> What'd you do? She didn't talk to me, man. She didn't talk to me for like two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. But listen, she didn't talk to me. And to, 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 to not have my mother speak to me, be so utterly disgusted with me, that was a feeling 
I would, I would rather take a whooping to disappoint your mother like that. Wow. Uh, and I've never, and that was the last time I've ever stolen anything <laughs> in my life. So here's, the, so here's the funny story about it. So I was interviewing for a job at Aaron's. I interviewed a job, and I, you know, I actually walked off with the pencils. So I'm driving down the street, and I have the pen in my hand. I'm like, oh, I'm an accident. So I turn around. It's like I'm driving like way down the street. So I turn around, and the guy that I interviewed with, I said, oh, my bad. I took your pen on accident, and I gave it back to him. And I walked out. And I got the job, and like a month later, like, a, like maybe like six months into the job, but he asked me, do I know why I got the job? I'm like, nah, I know why I got the job. He said, because I knew you wouldn't steal from me. Because he took that pen and brought it back to me. That's awesome. And that's all because my mom didn't talk to me when I stole something. You know, and, that, and that's, a, that's a funny thing about life, man. Yeah. And you, you just never know what lessons you learn, you know, that, that helps you get certain places in life. And I needed that job, too, man, at that time. <laughs> so, you know. With the interview over, Obino graciously walked me out of the school into my car. I thought we would just be making some small talk on the way, so I wasn't recording. But he started telling me when we were walking about their school's fascinating program to get every kid in an internship experience out in the working world during high school in which they get academic credit for. And so I quickly pulled out my cell phone and started recording. We're trying to get more, like, say, in, in the marketing pathway. So those kids that like marketing, we'll get them a job in marketing. Yeah. So they get that experience. So, so when they graduate high school, they can say, I had three months working here. You know? And so in your off time, you are out there trying to find more places for these kids to work. Uh, man, I'm always thinking about these. I'd be in the shower thinking about these kids. <laughs> You had an idea, man. So it's all about the kids, man. Because at the end of the day, this is this is gonna make the world better. You know, one less kid committing crimes, or one less kid committing a murder. Even even the knuckleheads, man. Like even these kids don't want to go to school. I was like, I was like, okay. I just had a kid. I just had a kid, and um. And uh, he had an ankle bracelet on. So you know, you know, you hear, you hear what's going on. Like he stole the car or whatever. And I knew, I just felt like my time was limited with him. And and one of the things I learned in life is how to change your life. Yeah. So the last time I saw him, I wrote on a piece of paper. I gave him my secret, man. I said, if you ever want to change the, uh, your life, you have to change the words that you listen to. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And one thing about me, when I, when, I, when I changed my life, I changed the words I listened to. That, and that meant I changed the music I listened to. I changed the people I hung around with. I changed the places that I go. And I wrote that down. I wrote that down on a sheet of paper and I gave it to him. And like two, three days later, his name's off my roster. And today in class, I'm like, what happened to Booker? Uh, he, got, he, went to, he, got, he got locked up. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I don't, I don't know how his story ends, but I can look in the mirror and say, I seen him, and I did everything I could to help him. You know, and most kids look at that kid, like, most kids are like, I ain't helping him. I mean, he's, he's already going down that path. Yeah. That's not your job to, as a teacher to decide, you know, how, how his life ends up. It's like that, that little interaction you have with them. Did you, did, can you look in, your, in the mirror and say you did everything you could? You know what I'm saying? And I didn't know that was the last time I saw him, you know? But I just, that's just being a teacher. You know, every day you, you, you're in 80 kids' lives. You got 80 kids every day. Yeah. 
And, you know, I got my own five kids. But those moments, man, you have to say, did you do everything to help that kid while he was in your class? Because you never know. And what's great is you, even if he doesn't follow you in this moment, you put a thought in his head that he can go back to. Yeah. You know, five years from now, he can think about what you said and, and, and go I, back to and it. And I wrote it down, and I remember him grabbing it, putting it in his pocket. And, and those are those moments, man. And that might mean something, might not mean nothing. Yeah. No, but the point is, he can't, he can't say that he didn't have no adult he couldn't go to or couldn't ask about right. something. You know, that's, at the end of the day, that's all it is. And that's not all it is. What a great story. If this country had more teachers like Obino Coley, my goodness, what a difference. A difference maker, Normandy High School. He teaches entrepreneurship classes sponsored by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. What a story here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite regular features, and it's called The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. Her latest question for the Wall Street Journal, and you can see it there regularly, should high schools offer nap time? And I know the whole staff here is thinking, should Habib offer nap time? (laughs) And, well, Heidi, how how did this subject come up, and is there nap time in Heidi household? Oh, I'm feeling I'm feeling bad. I shouldn't even say that, but it's my it's the day after my birthday. It's not even my birthday, but I'm uh, I'm working from bed. This is what I do on days when it's beautifully sunny out, but too cold to go outside. But should there be nap time in high school? Well, so this is the, okay. The, where the idea came from was I'm ashamed to admit, but I was in, I was applying my oldest son for high school, and we were talking to all these kids here in our new town of Chicago, and every kid was talking about how they have a nap club or they bring their sleeping bags to school or they're encouraged to use their free periods um, to take a little snooze. There's sofas at some schools where they're allowed to lay down and just take a little break. There's um, there's a free period. if you, Your free period can come early in the morning, first period, if you have good grades so you can sleep in. And so then I started to look into it, and, you know, it was like 2014. There was a big movement from the um, American Academy of um, Pediatrics that uh, talked about pushing school start times, especially for high schoolers, to no earlier than 8.30. I don't know what time your high school started. Mine started at 7.15 in Arizona. Wow, and, and by the way, Heidi, they start in the South. They start even elementary school. I take my kid to school at quarter to seven for a seven o'clock start, which means she's getting up at six. And I got to tell you, it don't make any sense to me, you know, it's sixth brutal, graders right? getting up that early. It's brutal. So then add on top of it, high schoolers who have like four hours of homework, perhaps a sport, maybe they're doing model UN, they're, uh, they're studying for their SATs. They have a social life. They're, of course, they're all on their phones all the time. And these kids are ending up with maybe five hours of sleep. So sleep deprivation is really a big problem. So there was a big move to move 
um, school start times to no earlier than 8.30. It did happen here in Chicago, um, and it's hard because the routes of the buses and parents going to work and all these things have to change after school sports. It's a big, dramatic shift. It hasn't happened everywhere. So some schools for whom this hasn't happened, they're looking at other ways where they can attack sleep deprivation. And a lot of it, interestingly, is happening at schools where kids are at risk for dropping out of high school, not going on to college, um, so it isn't just there was a, a lot of talk with my editors about like, well, is this just, you know, coddling these snowflakes? <laughs> and, right. um, but it isn't. I mean, a lot of uh, there's like data to back up that there's not a lot of data amongst teenagers because you, you can't really do so much data. But there was some in Brazil um, and some in Europe. And um, and there's lots of data about shift workers that can benefit from naps. Um, and from just growing up, they can benefit not too long of a nap, like 20 to 30 minutes is right. really optimal. Um, and then it comes into like, do we have space? Do we have, um, teachers who can oversee this? Can we assure that these children aren't abusing their privilege? So it's a, it's a complicated. Yeah. There's a lot, actually. there's a Let lot to touch. think about a lot to think <laughs> right. about. And by the way, you know, it's interesting. We talk about the snowflakes and they're out there, but I've also noticed, and I, I think you have too, Heidi, that there's never been more pressure on kids too. I mean, when I went to high school, no one was taking SAT camp. When I played basketball, I didn't go on the road and play all over multi-states. I didn't have all the advanced placement and all the pressure about my, my GPA being 4.25 out of a 4 point. So we've created snowflakes. But at the same time, boy, we've been bearing down on these kids. And a lot of these kids, they bear down on themselves. And then when you take the inner city kids, and I've spent a lot of time around them, my goodness, the stressful environment some of these kids live in, exactly. there's no sleeping I mean, at night. Exactly. I mean, there were some some educators I spoke with, and they said, you know, one kid's mom had sold his mattress for money, and so he was sleeping on the floor, and so of course he's tired. So it isn't just kids that are going to private schools and have every advantage. Yes, they they I think they themselves and their parents feel like they need to be, you know, the president of every club right. and on the travel soccer team as the captain and all that stuff in order to get into, you know, Princeton, but but also just kids that need to just cope. I mean, kids need, they need eight and a half to 10 and a half hours of sleep. I mean, an eight and a half to nine and a half is the sleep, uh, American Academy of Sleep Medicine says. And that's just, I mean, how are you going to squeeze that in? So I thought it was a really interesting idea. So some of these schools have like a wellness center. They're in in California, Northern California. They put, especially for these at-risk kids, they put the wellness center on campus, which is so smart so that kids can see doctors talk about sex ed, things they maybe can't do at home or don't have access to, um, they can do that at school. And along with that is like a cozy, comfortable area where they can have a cup of tea and it's free and just they chill out on a, on a couch for a couple minutes or 15 minutes and just relax and take a break from the day. There are other schools who are doing really interesting things using, and they're really test cases, but using transcendental meditation and then the the... the other group is the control group is they're not doing transcendental meditation meditation. They're just doing um, quiet time. They call it quiet time. And it's, I mean, these are kids that are old. I mean, they're 16, 17 year olds and they're sitting in a room and not talking, no electronics for 15, 20 minutes um, at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day. And they've seen grades go up. They've seen violence decrease. So I don't believe that it's, um, you know, it's, it's something that for these coddled kids and a lot of the posts, 
I mean, there were a lot of positive comments at the bottom, but a lot of them were also like, how about parents, parents, and let their kids sleep at night. But parents are also saying, I want you to go to college, and I want you to get good grades. So there's just a lot of pressure coming at them from every angle. You bet. And in Japan, the Meisen High School gained international attention a decade ago for encouraging a midday siesta for all students. And teachers saw a dramatic rise in test scores. Heidi, talk about that. Isn't that interesting? So Japan is an interesting case because they put, um, they take pride in their nap time. Um, so they, there's a word for it. I don't remember what it is. There was a New York Times na- um, article on how falling asleep, it's called being asleep and being present. It's a word that translates that, but the sleeping at your desk or on the train is very common and isn't looked down upon. Whereas, you know, in New York City on the subway, you know, you nudge the guy next to you like you're asleep, dude. Um, and so there, there isn't a stigma attached to falling asleep, and it's maybe even beneficial. Um, I've talked to other um, people like at the Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic, and they um, they take naps in the middle of the day, turn off all the... I mean, these are highly engaged professional you know, researchers and, and top of their field, and they will take a 20-minute nap in the middle of the day. So there are cultures in certain settings where napping is, of course, there's a siesta, which is part of Latin American and Spanish culture. And it makes sense because you would rise with the sun and you would sleep with the sun. And so sometimes your days are long. Yep. And after lunch, there's a known dip in your mental state. And so it makes sense that after lunch, you'd maybe carve out 15, 20 minutes and, and just chill out. Oh, I'm half Italian, Heidi. That was a part of our <laughs> life. We had the big meals on Saturday and Sunday in the early afternoon, and then everybody went their ways and took a nap, and it got really quiet. And yeah, it was and wonderful. Yeah, productive, right? Yep. I mean, you're, you're alert and awake. Because for 4 o'clock, I mean, kids will take a power shake. They'll drink a Starbucks. You know, to get, just like grownups do, you know, to stay awake at four o'clock and, and get be alert and, you know, be able to tackle AP calculus. And it's, it's tough. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I'm all for this. I think that the days probably need to be long enough, you know, so you could squeeze in a 20 minute nap and just like maybe play some Enya, turn down the music. <laughs> exactly. And get turn off your cell life. phone and get off your cell get phone. Get off your cell phone. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now, not everyone is convinced, Heidi, as we close this out, not everyone's convinced that this works. What are some of the teachers and parents' responses that you talk about? And again, we're talking to Heidi Mitchell of the Wall Street Journal, and this is one of our favorite segments, The Burning Question. What was some of the mixed reaction? So one that I really thought was well-argued was that the reason why we are tired at whatever it is, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at, at night, it's because it, the distance from your last sleep is how tired you're going to be. So it's called sleep pressure. And if you nap in the middle of the day, you could be taking away some of that sleep pressure, which then might encourage these already overtaxed teenagers to stay up even later because they're just not tired. So you want to make sure that that they have enough sleep pressure that they're falling asleep. So you could make that nap, you know, school starts at 8 and you can make that nap at 12.30. They're still going to be tired by 10.30 and right. I think 10 hours is fine. So, so she had a good argument, though, that I'd rather see kids going to bed, you know, at 9.30 and waking up at 5.30 or whatever and getting their real eight and a half hours in. Um, then, then she would seeing them take a nap at school. And then, of course, many people I spoke to were like, where are they getting the money? And where are they finding the space? And, like, who's donating the yoga mats? And, you know, is this a reality? Or are these kids just, you know, making out in the bathroom and, and, <laughs> and texting each other during right. this supposed nap time? Right. Um, so That's what, you know, Heidi, there's... what I worry about or wonder about is you get a bunch of kids and you go, okay, kids, nap. 
And how does that right. work? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can take a, a horse to water, right? But I think that just even studies have shown that even just darkening the room and calming it down, yep. I mean, especially with if you can meditate or just not, clear your mind of any thoughts for 10 minutes, for 15 minutes, it does have an impact on the rest of your day and you're more able to learn. I mean, some people were saying to me, this might be the new free school lunch, right. that they realized that kids couldn't learn in the afternoons because they weren't eating. So they brought in this free lunch, um, and one of the schools I spoke to, like 90% of their kids are on the free lunch program, and they're letting them um, use these nap pods, and they've seen violence go down in the school, and they've seen less um, absenteeism. So, Well, if it works, know, if it works Heidi, the jury's time. out. But, you know, we love the subject. Should high schools offer nap time, and should our American stories offer nap time? That's the burning <laughs> question here in the office. Thanks, as always, for joining us, Heidi. <laughs> Thank you. Enjoy your nap. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Heidi Mitchell of the Wall Street Journal.